0: Well, we are in the midst of a sermon series, we're studying through the book of 1 Peter. and One of the things that Peter has repeatedly emphasized is that our behavior is usually the first thing that people notice about us as believers. People see the way we behave before they want to know what we believe, and that's why Peter wrote in in 2.12, keep your behavior excellent or honorable among the Gentiles, people who don't know Christ. That they may give glory to God, that they may see your good works and give glory to God on the day of visitation. And so the idea is that we live transparent lives, people see our behavior, and that makes them interested in our faith, interested in the gospel we believe. And Peter says that some will believe, and when Christ returns on that day, they will give glory to God. And so that's quite a vision for our lives, right? Uh, today in First Peter, we come to a series of passages where Peter talks about what honorable behavior or excellent behavior looks like in the core relationships of our lives. And so he, he gives a kind of a code of conduct in 1 Peter 2 and 3. He gives a series of commands. This is what it looks like in these core, core relationships of your life. Sometimes it's called a household household code. And in that day, a household was, was quite expansive. It can include several generations in one family. It would include your servants or your slaves. And it was very common in, in, among the Greeks and the Romans to lay out this code of conduct. And these codes expressed express the dominant perspective concerning what they believed would promote a stable, strong society. And so these, these codes explained honorable behavior between uh, slaves and masters, husbands and wives, uh, parents and children. Now, Peter was aware of the dominant culture and that they looked at, at Christians as outsiders, and they were very suspicious of them. And so Peter was very much aware that, that the behavior of Christians within their households would have been scrutinized very closely. So he's, he lays out a code of conduct for believers. And uh, Peter wants them to understand what it looks like in these core relationships in their lives. And so, of course, these, these passages are important for us because our conduct in these relationships, in our homes and in the workplace... And in our neighborhood, our conduct speaks much more loudly than anything we say we believe. And so if people don't respect the way we behave in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in, the, in our places of work, they're certainly not going to respect our faith. So if they don't respect what they can see, they're not going to be interested in what they can't see. And so, our behavior is usually the first witness that we give. And so, obviously, we need to pay very close attention to the message we're sending in these relationships. And so, here's the plan. Today, we're going to look at 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 25, and that's Peter's instruction to slaves in, in the first century. And uh, next, we're going to take a, a break from 1 Peter. The following week, b- week, Brian is going to teach from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, about what Peter says to wives and to husbands, P, uh, Brian really wanted that passage, so I'm donating that to him two weeks from today. But it's important to note just one observation: if you if you look in Ephesians five and six, that's where Paul gives his code of conduct in the household. Now, when he does that, he he has a much broader scope than Peter did, and so Paul talks about husbands and wives, slaves and masters, parents and children. Okay. Peter, when he gives his code of conduct, he primarily talks to slaves. There's no mention of masters. He doesn't address masters. And he primarily talks to wives. He he has only one verse, to husbands. And all this suggests that Peter isn't telling us everything we need to know about these relationships. He had very specific focus, namely how those who were the most vulnerable, how those who were the least protected, namely slaves, and wives in that culture, how they should conduct themselves. And so as we work our way through this passage, we're going to have to think very carefully, very clearly to discern the application for us. And of course, Peter gives some perspectives that transcend every culture, uh, but, but he's going to address some very specific cultural and societal situations. For example, in today's passage, we're going to see Peter tells servants or slaves Be subject to your masters, even if they are unjust, okay? Honestly, we don't have anything that's analogous to that command or that situation in our culture today. Uh, There is injustice, of course, but it will be an application to apply that to the workplace. Uh, We don't have an equivalent situation to slavery in America in our day, And so, uh, we have a very different, different context. We have laws that are designed to protect employees from injustice in the workplace. Most businesses, most organizations have HR departments that hear grievances, that hear complaints, and that address those things. And so, Peter was writing to slaves who were living in the Roman Empire, which was a totalitarian state, okay? So, it's a very different context. We have to understand that context as we interpret these passages. So, uh, I will tell you straight up: I don't have this all figured out. But there are some really clear things that Peter says, and I really want us to get those. Well, let's notice in verses eighteen through twenty how Peter addresses believers in Asia Minor, uh, Asia Minor, who were slaves. And after addressing that specific example of suffering unjustly, Peter's going to say, basically what I'm telling you is you need to imitate Christ in his suffering. And so we see here, a specific calling for servants when suffering unjustly, Uh, be subject to your masters. Beginning in verse 18, Peter addresses servants. He says this, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. As Sam mentioned last week when he talked about submitting to governmental authorities, uh, submission or being subject isn't mindless obedience. And if you submit to another person, if you're subject to another person, it doesn't mean that you have no voice. And it doesn't mean that the other person has more value than you do. But basically what you're saying is you're acknowledging that God has an order in this world and in each culture, and in that culture, we need to respect it. And so Peter is urging urging servants to acknowledge that their masters have authority over them. Peter isn't saying that God ordained slavery, but he's saying that since slavery exists, you need to acknowledge your master's authority over you. That was a fact of life in the first century. He says, be subject to your masters with all respect. And the respect he's talking about there probably is not respect for their masters, but it's probably respect for God. It's the same word he used in chapter 1 when he said, fear the lord and so this fear of the lord or this <clears throat> this respect for god is is uh, is to prompt their response and so servants were supposed to say from the heart out of my reverence for god i will be subject to my master now what's the presupposition here the presupposition is that there was injustice in the roman empire in peter's day okay so he's assuming that as a fact and so he's not advocating revolt He's not even even saying you should try to correct the injustice that you experience. Now, that was his command to them. That doesn't mean, and I'm going to trip all over myself this morning saying this, that doesn't mean that you and I should not try to correct injustices. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't advocate for people who are mistreated and abused. Uh, we, are, we are actually blessed. We're, we live in a bubble. We, we are blessed by God to live in a country where we have a say in the laws and the policies that are enacted in our, in our culture. But in Peter's day, they were at the mercy of a totalitarian state, as are many Christians, many people throughout the world today. Many people have no say in how they're treated but in Peter's context the emphasis was upon living within existing social structures in a distinctively Christian way. Peter's going to say in this household you find yourself in this is how you behave as a Christian. And now again just to be clear the the application for us is not whatever you experience just take it. Okay? that's not the case. I remember a, a good friend years ago who she she expressed to me a type of sexual harassment that she experienced in the workplace and it was such a horrible horrible experience for her, such a scarring, devastating experience for her. In that situation, she had recourse. There there were things she can, she could and she she should have done, taking advantages of resource to address those issues and seek justice. So again, we are blessed to have the freedoms that we have in our culture. And I would also add that Peter is not describing excellent behavior in the church or even in a Christian home. He's not saying when you're mistreated, just submit to your to, to whoever's doing it. Now, as a matter of fact, there, there will be times when we overlook an offense in the church. But if it's sin of any consequence, we're to speak the truth in love. Uh, we are to confront that sin. We are to repent. We're to confess our, our sins one to another. We are to repent. We are to do different. But Peter's talking about servants who are suffering at the, at the hands of, of unbelieving masters. By contrast, you want to know what it'd say to believing masters. Read Ephesians 6. Paul said to them, if you're a master, you need to understand you have a master in heaven. You need to, to treat your your servants accordingly. Or read the book of Philemon. Paul appealed to Philemon, who was a Christian, and, and he was, his slave Onesimus was being returned. He said, you should treat him as a brother. And so that's what, what the Bible would say in those situations. Now, it is likely some within the churches in Asia Minor were slave owners, and they would have heard Peter appealing to slaves to suffer well, even if they're treated unjustly. And we would imagine that the Holy Spirit within them would have prompted them and would have, would have convicted them and said, may that never be me who mistreats his servant. And, and in our day, Uh, the Holy Spirit may prompt you as we're talking about these things. You may know someone who is being mistreated in your workplace or in your neighborhood or some other context, and the Spirit may prompt you and say, this is what I should do. This is how I should advocate and work to right this wrong. But why would Peter tell servants in Asia Minor, be subject to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust? What possible good could come from submitting to an unjust master? Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter says that when your devotion to God, your reverence for God from prompts you to suffer unjustly, you will experience his grace. You will experience his help. His favor will be upon you. Persevering through trials and sorrows in this life invites the grace of God into your life. And so this is an application of what Peter is urging in chapter 5, where he says, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Cast all your anxieties upon him. Because God gives grace to the humble. God really does care for you. In verse 20 he makes a, an important point of clarification. He says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Nobody's going to be impressed if you pay your speeding ticket, right? They're going to say, No, that's what you deserve. That's what you should do. He says, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so, for example, if you refuse to take your brother to court and it costs you financially, people will respect you for that. They'll say, wow, you care more about this relationship. You care more about Jesus than you do about money. And so here, Peter is saying, if you patiently endure unjust treatment, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The favor of God rests upon you. And so this is a hard teaching. And in our 21st century American con. con context uh, suffering for doing good it kind of offends our sensibilities doesn't it I was thinking about this this week and I was thinking what if one of my kids were treated unjustly either in school or in uh, a work contest context uh, everything within me would rise up and I would say you don't have to take that and I would, I would do everything within my power to, to say I don't want my kids to experience that type of suffering and sometimes that reaction is, is warranted. Sometimes things are, are, are bad enough to step in and intervene. But if I never allow my kids to suffer insults, if I never let them suffer injustice, they will miss the power of this passage. They will miss uh, many things that God wants to do in them and through them. And so this is a fact of life. We will be insulted, we will be mistreated. There will be times when we are not treated fairly and we have no recourse, okay? That is a fact of life. And as you know, it's possible to experience injustice and become bitter. It's possible to become cynical. Uh, It's possible to end up less humble and less open to the grace of God. And honestly, that's the most normal, natural response in our, in our heart of hearts. Uh, that's what we, we crave is, uh, is just justice. And if anything violates that, we're like, I'm done. But I know other people who have suffered great injustice and they have emerged on the other side more humble and more open to the grace of God. They have emerged more tender and more open to what God is doing through them. And they experience the abundance that Jesus promised. And so the ability to endure, the ability to live out this passage is purely the grace of God. It is the fruit of abiding in Christ. For a, just a, a casual Christian or somebody who really doesn't, doesn't seek God, it's hard to imagine actually living this out from the heart. You may Your behavior may fall in line, but in the heart, bad things will happen. And the world says that if you're wronged, you are free to exact revenge. I don't get mad, I get even, right? The world says if you are wrong, you can lash out with vengeance. But what does Peter say? He says you have an alternative. You're a follower of Christ. You can imitate him. And so this is what we see in verses 21 through 25. Our calling when suffering unjustly, whatever the context, is follow the example of Christ. Look at verse 21. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Notice a couple things about this verse. First of all, he says, it's a calling. You have been called to follow Jesus' example. And so this way of life, this way of suffering, it's not incidental. It's not optional. This is at the heart of what God has called us to do. If he calls us to follow Christ, he calls us to follow Christ in his suffering. And second, Peter says that when Christ suffered for us, he left us an example to follow. Now there are certain things about Jesus suffering that are unique, right? He uniquely suffered as our substitute on the cross. That's something you and I can never do for another person. We can never be a sacrifice for another because we are not sinless. But the way he suffered provides an example so that you, so that we might follow in his steps. And the imagery here is significant. Maybe as a kid or or maybe now, you you played this game in the snow. When you you make footprints in the snow and the person behind you, they have to try to match your footsteps and follow in in, in the, the, the footprints in the snow. And that's what he's saying. He's saying when you suffer, notice the footprints of Jesus' suffering. Try to step exactly the way Jesus stepped. Now, what's he talking about? Well, he tells us in verses 22 through 25, and this is a passage where he he makes quotes and allusions to Isaiah 53. This is actually the primary place where Isaiah 53 is, is identified. What Isaiah was talking about was Jesus. That's the primary place where we see this. He was the suffering servant. And so beginning in verse 22, Peter traces Jesus' suffering from his arrest to his trial to the cross. And so we read this in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so Peter explains what Jesus didn't do and then what he did do. What did he not do? Well, he committed no sin. He never sinned. Specifically, he's talking about sins of the, of the tongue is what he's emphasizing here. He was not suffering the just penalty of something he had done. He never committed sins of the tongue, which are so common when we're wronged. When we're wronged, we've, we have this, this sense, well, I have a right to insult people because I've been wronged. Jesus never did that. He, uh, it says, there was never any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he was reviled by the Sanhedrin, by the Roman soldiers. He was even reviled by a man who was hanging on a cross beside him. Random people walked by and they hurled insults at him. Jesus was beaten. He was spat upon. He was crucified. And he never responded with insults or threats. He never returned evil for evil or insult for insult. And so I ask you, do you feel justified when you are wronged in any context to lash out at other people? Do you feel like you have a right to return insult for insult? And even if you don't say those insults, do you, do you store them up in your heart? Well, Jesus says, Peter says, that's what Jesus did not do. What did Jesus do? He says he continued entrusting himself to God, to him who judges justly. He prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He actually returned blessing. He gave them a blessing. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, really. They they don't understand what they're doing. In 419, Peter will tell us this, to imitate Christ. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so he says, you should do, you should entrust yourself to God the way Jesus did. Well, notice back in 224 what Jesus' suffering accomplished. Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He's very specific here, very, very precise. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So Jesus' physical wounds healed our spiritual wounds. And then in verse 25, he does a masterful thing. He says this For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now he quotes from Ezekiel chapter, chapter 34, in which God promised the people in exile I'm going to shepherd you, I'm going to gather you, I'm going to give oversight to your lives. What Peter says here, he says, that has happened to you. Even though you're living in exile, even though you're suffering unjustly, the Lord is your shepherd. He's watching over your souls. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. You are not alone. And so Peter teaches we should imitate Christ. And commentators have often pointed out how ironic it was that Peter of all people, or is the one in the New Testament, the primary one in the New Testament, who says imitate Christ in his suffering. Peter was the one who got up in Jesus' face when Jesus explained, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer many things. I must be crucified and then raised on the third day. We're told that, that Peter got in Jesus' face and rebuked him. He said, never shall this happen to you. And Peter was the one, when Jesus was being arrested, he pulled out his sword and he lopped off the guy's ear. And so now, years later, here's Peter who who has a total change of heart. Peter not only understood that Jesus had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, Peter also believed that Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And so a radical transformation has taken place. In Peter's life. He no longer looked at being mistreated as a curse or a distraction or a disqualifier. He believed that suffering like Jesus was an opportunity to be Christ-like. The suffering injustice was an opportunity to be Christ-like. And as we approach the Lord's table, I, I wanna ask you to consider a very simple thing. I, wa- I want you to engage this on a heart level. Do you believe what Peter says here. Do you agree that Jesus has left you an example, not just hypothetically, but that has he left you an example to follow in his steps? And again, I'm not saying that that Jesus wants you to take it whenever you're mistreated. Uh, No, you you may be in a situation where you are physically and emotionally in danger. I'm not saying just take it. But what I am saying is that if this passage never applies to you, never applies to you in any situation, then that's a problem. Are you open to the possibility that there are relationships and situations in which God wants you to imitate Jesus and suffer unjustly? You know, some people basically, in one way or another, vow I am never going to be mistreated again. I am never going to put myself in a situation where others can insult me. And if they do, I'm going to insult them in return. They will feel my wrath in word or in deed, or at the very least, I'm going to murder them over and over in my heart. Well, when we do that, we're just like the old Peter. When we do that, we're basically rebuking Jesus and we're saying, no, suffering is never the will of God. But when we, when we acknowledge, uh, Jesus, you've left me an example to follow in your steps, then we're true disciples. Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He's talking about a life of self denial, a life of suffering. And so it's a, it's a counterintuitive thing, but Scripture makes clear that if you want a life of joy, if you want a life of power, If you want a life of influence, follow Christ, imitate Christ, especially the way he suffered. And so perhaps there's a specific way that Jesus is inviting you into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Perhaps there's a circumstance or a relationship right now. And so as we pass the bread and the cup, uh, fix your eyes on Jesus. Notice how he suffered. Notice that his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. Notice what that accomplished. Consider the possibility that your witness might be enhanced by you suffering unjustly the way Christ did. And so see your situation in light of his, not to trivialize your suffering, but to put it in perspective and to see it in light of his. He will give you strength. He will give you confidence to imitate him. The same spirit that empowered Jesus dwells within every believer. So I'd like for those who are going to serve the Lord's table today to come forward. And so we will pass the the bread first. If you need allergen-free communion bread, it's in the, the center of the tray. I'd ask you to hold the bread until everyone is received, and then we'll eat. And then we'll pass the cup in the same manner. So, Heavenly Fathers, we come to the Lord's table today. We do so just acknowledging that, that we don't understand many things that happen in this world. We don't understand the injustice that we experience and people around us experience. But, God, we, we see very clearly that Jesus has given us an example to follow. And so we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. We want to understand his example. and We want to imitate him. And God, in the specifics of our lives, we pray that you would lead us. We pray that you would give us a vision for, for how we should be like Christ and how we should follow him. And so we look to you now, we submit to you now.